0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a virgin margarita.
1: I'm also keeping it sober and drinking some sparkling water. Today, we're looking at the infamous case of Lester Eubanks, an escaped felon that's been on the run for 48 years and is one of the U.S. Marshals' 15 Most Wanted Fugitives. He has gained notoriety after being featured on the Netflix Unsolved Mysteries reboot and the ABC podcast Have You Seen This Man? Our case begins on November 14, 1965. 14-year-old Mary Ellen Deener and her younger sister Brenda were doing the family's laundry when their dryer broke. Their mom got them a taxi to a local laundromat so they could finish the wash. Though it was later at night, their mom felt safe sending her daughters out because their grandma lived next door to the laundromat. The girls were out of change, so Mary Ellen left to get more. She shouldn't have been gone long, but Brenda noticed she was taking an extra long time. Worried, Brenda went to their grandmother's house and told her Mary Ellen hadn't come back. Their grandmother went out to search for Mary Ellen. She quickly found a crowd gathered around the body of a young girl, who was unfortunately Mary Ellen. She had been shot in the chest and stomach with a thirty-two caliber handgun, and her skull was shattered she was still holding change in her hand. Mary Ellen was described as an excellent student who aspired to be a nun. She loved roller skating and playing with her dolls. Her older sister Myrtle remembers that Mary Ellen was always giggling and having fun. Police immediately began looking for the owner of the gun. They discovered that a handgun matching the gun used to shoot Mary Ellen had recently been purchased at a local store by Lester Eubanks. Lester Eubanks grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. He was one of seven children, and his father was a well-known pastor in the area. He was a military man, but had several run-ins with the law. Some described Lester as a loner and claimed that he walked around their neighborhood with nunchucks. At the age of 16, Lester was cited for sexually assaulting a 12-year-old girl. Then in 1965, at the age of 22, he was accused of attempting to rape a waitress at a diner. He was released on $500 bond and this happened just four months before Mary Ellen was murdered. Lester was arrested for Mary Ellen's murder while walking home from church and gave a detailed confession to police. He told police that he ran into Mary Ellen on the street and she tried to hit him with a soda bottle. He then put his hand over Mary Ellen's mouth and dragged her behind a nearby empty house, but Mary Ellen kept trying to scream, so Lester told her to be quiet and shot her. He then returned to his apartment and came back shortly after and noticed Mary Ellen moaning in pain and calling out for help before hitting her in the head with a brick and ultimately killing her. In addition to Lester's confession and match of the gun, there was an eyewitness sighting of him near the crime scene and a shoe print at the scene of the crime. Police think the actual events that occurred on the night of November 14th are slightly different from Lester's confession. They believe Lester followed Mary Ellen from the laundromat and attempted to rape her, but she fought back and Lester shot her. He immediately went to his apartment to get ready to go dancing, and on his way downtown, he checked on her, noticed she was still alive, and hit her with a brick. Lester pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity during his trial. A jury took only 10 hours to find him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. It's said that he showed no remorse during the trial. Mary Ellen's sister Myrtle said it felt like watching a movie because everything happened so fast. Lester was sent to the Ohio State Penitentiary to await his execution. His execution date was pushed back multiple times. Then in 1972, three days before his final execution date, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional. Every death row inmate sentence was commuted to life in prison. Lester was then moved to the prison general population. Other inmates have since called him cocky and a smooth talker. During his eight years in prison, Lester passed the time by painting and joining the prison art club. Art supplies were commonly given to inmates, especially those on death row, and his work was featured in art shows and even won several awards.
0: In the 1960s and 70s, the United States prison system was focusing on reform and rehabilitation of inmates to help prepare them for life after incarceration. This included allowing inmates to have jobs within the prison and to leave the prison to attend church services and run errands. Lester was one of the inmates at the Ohio State Penitentiary to participate in the prison's honor program. This was a rewards program for inmates that showed good behavior. Though the program had good intentions, inmates did take advantage of the freedom it gave them. At least three inmates had fled while attending outside events, including the state fair, baseball games, and shopping trips. On December 7, 1973, four inmates, including Lester, was taken to a local shopping mall in Columbus to go Christmas shopping. The mall was on the edge of the city and was surrounded by fields. It was also very busy due to holiday crowds. During the trip, the inmates did not have to stay with the guards and were able to wear regular civilian clothes. The group was supposed to meet at a checkpoint after a few hours and return to the prison. Three inmates returned, but Lester was nowhere to be found. Surprisingly, there wasn't immediately a massive manhunt for Lester. It took two hours for the highway patrol to be notified, which many have blamed on the guards and the penitentiary's embarrassment. Mary Ellen's family was shocked when they heard the news and didn't understand why a convicted child murderer would be trusted with Christmas shopping immediate leads on Lester's whereabouts went nowhere. Records from the prison showed that Lester had been getting lots of visitors in the weeks leading up to his escape, which solidified the police's theory that this was a planned escape. They felt someone was waiting for Lester at the shopping center and that this person had a connection to prison staff. Upon further looking into Lester, it was discovered that he wasn't such a model prisoner after all. His records show that he had gotten into multiple fights with other inmates, yet somehow he still received recommendation letters for the honor program. Some even questioned whether he had charmed the guards into helping him. Police began looking into Lester's family for answers. His father, Mose, was a well-known preacher and civil rights leader in the area who had connections with nearby prisons. He founded a program that allowed inmates in Ohio prisons to go to church and to do local jobs outside of the prisons. Though he was known as a moral leader, his attitude changed after Lester's conviction. He never wanted to talk about Lester and even intimidated news outlets that were reporting on his son's crimes.
1: When Lester fled, police believed a local county warrant and an FBI warrant for his arrest had been placed. 20 years later, in 1993, Ohio officer John Arcudi checked into the case to see if Lester had been apprehended and someone just forgot to notify the Ohio police. But what he found shocked him. The federal warrant for Lester had been removed and he wasn't even in the system as an escaped convict or a federal fugitive. This was likely due to a clerical error or just lack of follow-up. To gain traction on the case, Lester was featured on America's Most Wanted. Not long after the show aired, a woman called in saying she had hung out with Lester in Los Angeles and that he lived with a woman named Kay Banks. Kay was interviewed by police in 1994 and gave them some new information. Police learned from Kay that Lester had been living with her but was no longer there. Kay was the widow of Lester's Motown singing uncle and was Lester's prison pen pal. There's actually a photo of Lester's cell and in it you can see a picture of Kay hanging on the wall. She said she didn't know he had planned to escape. And before living with her, he was hiding in Michigan and painting houses to make some money. Lester then took a bus to LA and while en route to LA, the bus was stopped at the California state line by investigators looking for fruit coming across state borders illegally. In another twist of events, the FBI had actually gone to interview Kay not long after Lester's escape, but it turned out that they had just interviewed her before Lester had arrived. In Los Angeles, Lester was going by the name Victor Young. Kay claimed Lester would often bully and intimidate her, and to get rid of him, she lied and said the police had contacted her. He left not long after that, and that was the last she had seen of him. The host of the podcast, Have You Seen This Man, met with Kay's son, Daryl, who grew close to Lester when he lived at their L.A. home, and he corroborated Kay's story. Daryl believes Lester is dead and likely got into trouble with the wrong person. All along, police felt Mose was helping Lester. Mose told officials that he prayed for Lester every day and made other statements that caused them to feel that Lester was alive. A police informant who visited Mose claimed that the phone rang during their visit, and Mose returned saying he had talked to his son in Alabama who was painting houses. None of his children were known to be living in Alabama at the time, and Lester was a known painter. There were rumors of Lester returning back to Ohio for his mother's funeral in 2003 in a disguise, and police actually staked out the funeral but found nothing. Mose died in 2012, and his obituary made reference to Lester whose whereabouts were claimed to be unknown. The host of the Have You Seen This Man podcast met with a man claiming to be Lester's son. He said he was conceived when Lester raped his mom sometime before Mary Ellen was murdered. The anonymous man never met Lester, but said Lester's family had some contact with him. It was confirmed through a DNA test that he was indeed Lester's son. The U.S. Marshals have been trying to gain approvals to compare his biological son's DNA against samples of DNA collected from unsolved crime scene evidence around the country in hopes that it will yield a match and offer hints to Eubanks' new identity or recent location. However, there are legal issues regarding the use of DNA and familial searches to assist in criminal cases. Myrtle has worked to keep Mary Ellen's name in the public eye and has pleaded with Lester's family to come forward with information. She wrote a piece for a local newspaper and said, quote, as long as Mary Ellen's convicted murderer is free, her soul cannot be at rest, End quote. Deputy U.S. Marshal David Siler began working on the case in 2016. He believes Lester is alive based off statements his associates have given. Brian Fitzgibbon, another member of the U.S. Marshal Service, agrees and said, quote, he's alive, I feel we're getting closer, end quote. In the fall of 2020, Lester was featured on the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries, which brought in tips, renewed interest to the case, and support for Mary Ellen's family. If Lester is alive today, he would be 76 years old. Lester has a large scar on his right upper arm. You can find an age progression photo of Lester on our social media accounts. We'll be sure to post this once the episode is up. And there is a $50,000 reward for information that leads to his arrest. As we said at the start of our episode, Lester has been on the run for almost 50 years if he is alive today. Del, do you think he is alive? And if so, do you think he'll ever be found?
0: I think he definitely is alive. There's no real evidence as to why he would have died early mean, um, people tend to live later these days. And I don't know if he's going to be found. I think in a lot of cases, the longer you've been on the run, the more adaptable you are at being on the run. So I think that in a similar situation to what happened with Kay, that if he even thinks that the FBI is going to be on his trail, he's going to leave. And she was lying in that case, but someone else could be telling the truth.
1: Yeah, I do think he's alive. I'm not sure. I want to say yes, I think he'll be found. But it just seems like the police are always like two steps behind him. And Lester is a smart man. He, if you listen to the podcast, Have You Seen This Man, which they mentioned how he knew to get like a fishing license or a hunting license, and that would be his form of ID. So he didn't have any kind of like, I guess, official, like federal documentation. So He's clearly thought very much into this. And at one of his jobs while he was on the run, he was made sure to never be in pictures. And there's actually paperwork of him like practicing his signature over and over again so that he knew, you know, I can get this Victor Young name down and no one will question it. Do you think he's committed any more crimes since being on the run? Yes,
0: I definitely think that he has. Um, in addition to just the crimes he would need to commit to actually be on the run, such as identity theft, I think that he's shown himself to be a repeated rapist um and violator of other people, and I don't see any reason why that would have stopped. How about you?
1: That's how I feel too um in the Netflix special. One of the officers working on the case mentions the recidivism rate for sex offenders, too. And like you said, he has proven himself three times to be a sex offender. So why would it have really stopped? And honestly, all these close calls with the police, I'm sure he felt emboldened. Like, they're never going to catch me. Like, I can do whatever the hell I want. I do have to say, though... I understand why he would escape. I mean, I we're going to talk about prison reform um and the actions of the penitentiary a little later on, but why would he not escape? I feel like that's more of the question. He was given so much freedom and leeway to go to the mall. He didn't have to wear, you know, prison jumpsuit and he didn't have a guard with him. Like,
0: I definitely agree. And especially since it seemed like he knew how to work every system in his favor. I'm pretty sure that he was planning this for a while. Like, I am going to get my escape and I'm going to do it through snoozing up to the prison guards, you know, having my father work his connections, getting into this honors program and pretending to be a good inmate despite the fact that he was fighting a lot. And then I know if I get into this program, they're going to give me certain leeways.
1: Yeah, we hear that a lot about like people schmoozing the guards for favors, men and women in prison. Um, you mentioned his dad, and his dad makes me so mad. Um, Myrtle, Mary Ellen's older sister, said that no one in the Eubanks family ever apologize to her family or like try to contact them at all, which I think is really appalling. I mean, I know that you're probably very embarrassed and ashamed and, Maybe you don't really know how to feel at that moment, but if he's supposed to be a man of the cloth and some moral leader, you can't even you know, say I'm gonna pray for you or anything like that. This whole thing just really breaks my heart. If you see one picture of Mary Ellen, she looks like the sweetest girl and she really does look like a little girl. She doesn't really look 14. The fact that he told the police, oh, she was gonna hit me with a bottle and I had to defend myself. Who are you kidding with that? He was a 22-year-old adult man, tall. He had military experience, and he's scared of a little girl.
0: Yeah, that is the most ridiculous thing. I was so afraid of her. I shot her twice, then went home, then came back to check on her body, saw that she was still alive. So I was still really scared for my life. So I hit her over the head with a brick.
1: And the fact that he went out dancing, like nothing was wrong. He is a monster. That's what they say many times in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And he is an absolute monster. And if his family is helping him, it's truly appalling. So that gets us to another question I had for you, Dell. Do you think you would ever hide a loved one, whether it was a family or a friend, if they had committed a crime?
0: Everything morally in me wants to say no, that I wouldn't do that, that I would tell them to come in and then go into another room and call the police to come pick them up. But honestly, I would consider it. I care about my friends. I care about my family. And if I was their one anchor that they had, and they felt so comfortable with me that they would literally risk their freedom to reach out. I don't know how I could turn that away. How about you?
1: I kind of agree. And I know I'm just like over here talking shit on Lester's family, but I do understand, like, you don't know how you would react until you're in that situation. I guess it would maybe like depend, because I know you can get in trouble for that, obviously. And I wouldn't want to, you know, have any trouble with the law, but I would you know, probably run through the scenarios over and over in my head, especially for my parents or any very close friends. Um, I think the severity of the crime would also influence me too. Like, truthfully, I think if anyone did what Lester did, I wouldn't want to help them. I feel like I can't imagine any of my friends doing that. So to hear that you tried to rape a 14-year-old girl and then you killed her, it would make me question who they are, and I think I might be less inclined to help. So like we said, Lester's case used America's Most Wanted to help the police get some information and tips, and it did help them. Um, they had the woman who knew about Victor Young and his life with Kay in Los Angeles. Did you watch like America's Most Wanted growing up or as an adult at all?
0: I did. I loved the show. I've always been really interested, of course, in true crime and and just fascinated by the fact that people would be so bold as to try to escape from, you know, just prosecution or, you know, escape from jail. So I definitely watched it.
1: I never really watched any of these shows. Um, Maybe an episode of like America's Most Wanted Here or There. I've seen more of John Walsh's show like On the Hunt. I think that's his more recent show. I We were more of like a CSI family in my household, like all the dramatizations. um, I loved Unsolved Mysteries now, um, the Netflix version and the older version. I love when there's reruns of that. Forensic Files too. But for anyone that doesn't know, America's Most Wanted was, I wouldn't call it a reality show, but it was a show on TV. It ran from 1988 to 2011 about fugitives that were on the run or fugitives that the police couldn't find. Cases would get submitted um, through a submission line and then there was a tip line as well. The show is actually supposed to be returning in March of this year, so we'll see about that. But the first fugitive was caught within four days of the first show even airing. And officers were on hand during the airings of the show, too. So there was a tip line, like I just said, so people could call in. And then if the tip seemed credible, um, an operator would then hand that over to the police, which I thought was pretty interesting. And in total, they caught more than 1,000 fugitives. And there were some pretty interesting um, cases as well. There was a group of inmates that turned another prisoner in. From what I read, they were all watching America's Most Wanted Together in the prison and the man in question, I guess he was like about to be released on like a petty crime charge. And then the prisoners were like, hey, like, this is this guy that's charged with like an even bigger crime and the police don't know where he is like of course we're going to turn him in people also turned themselves in too which is interesting And the show briefly went off the air, but law enforcement and members of Congress requested it return. So it did. And we mentioned John Walsh earlier. John Walsh was the host. For anyone that didn't listen to our Johnny Gosh episode, which you definitely should, John Walsh was the creator of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. His son, Adam, was murdered in, I believe, the late 70s or early 80s. And John Walsh and his wife really became advocates for victims' rights and to help missing children and to make community safer, essentially. He's done a lot of work. He was the host of this show. He's still, even after he's been on the show, he's done a lot of um, really great work. But there are Criticisms of the show. So, the American Civil Liberties Union questioned whether or not the fugitives on the show would get a fair trial if they were caught, which I definitely understand. I actually never even really thought about this until like doing some research. I definitely understand the ACLU's um, criticisms of the show, especially since the show is plastering your face up and the show is called America's Most Wanted. So, it's assumed that you committed a crime and you are guilty. So I don't blame them for standing up for criminals' rights or alleged criminals' rights. And there was actually at least one case where a judge moved someone who had been featured on the show. They moved their trial to a different location to make it um, a little more fair, which is great to hear. Another thing to note is that retractions were never given if someone was found not guilty or if the charges were never dropped. And viewers were never updated on this information. So, again, that's leaving a nasty legacy for you on national television and in the public eye. I didn't see this mentioned anywhere, but do you think the show would have created an unnecessary sense of fear in, I guess, the American public?
0: I think that it could if it created an atmosphere of people thinking that crimes were more abundant than they actually were. You know, if you're always looking at someone else suspiciously, it's really hard to form a a community with that person if you're always looking over your shoulder like, hmm, I wonder if someone's going to do me harm, I think that you would find it very hard to actually form connections and trust people and actually create a good society and set societal standards.
1: I feel the same. Um, I feel like we as America are kind of a fearful society. We're not very trusting, which You know, in modern times, I feel like there are a lot of reasons not to be trusting of people. But if we're watching every week, hearing about this new dangerous person is out there and they could be in your neighborhood, let us know. Like, I know I probably would have been anxious watching that as a kid. Like we said, Lester is on the U.S. Marshals' 15 most wanted list. Um, That list started in 1983 and 238 of the listed 15 most wanted people throughout the lifespan of the program, have been apprehended. Offenders tend to be career criminals with histories of violence or whose instant offenses pose a significant threat to public safety. And current and past fugitives in this program include murderers, sex offenders, major drug kingpins, organized crime figures, and individuals wanted for high-profile financial crime. So pretty much everyone you would think of for this type of list. And we also have the FBI's most wanted here in America, their most wanted fugitive list. That started in 1950 and 490 of the 524 fugitives that have been on the list were apprehended. So I guess they have a pretty good track record. And FBI field offices throughout the country submit fugitives for approval to be on this list. Another thing we have to cover with the Lester Eubanks case is inmate rehabilitation programs in prison. So when people talk about this case, I think the craziest thing to most people is that he was allowed to go out and shop for Christmas presents. And like we said earlier, prison abolition and reform was gaining momentum i guess you could say in the 70s high rates of crime were also happening at the time which led to the future prison boom which i believe we'll talk about in another episode we could do a whole podcast series on the u.s prison boom and prison system but i know we've talked about it at great lengths already in this podcast inmates and activists pushed for humane conditions and opportunities for release Reformers fought for fewer prisons and for inmates to have access to education, job training, religious worship, and smaller prison populations. And a lot of this call for reform stemmed from prison riots that were going on in the 50s. And this was kind of going on throughout the world, actually. So from these riots and the reform movement came the treatment model, which focused on treating prisoners and prepping them for release. So that included things like furloughs for good behavior and having jobs and maybe a little more independence around the prison. And in some cases, states even created group homes for released prisoners.
0: So, Jenny, thinking about, you know, the different rehabilitation programs that are available, what do you think about the specific program that Lester was in?
1: I do think it has good intentions. I'm very much about prison reform, but I don't think Lester should have been included in this program. Even if he was displaying good behavior, when it comes down to it, he murdered someone and he murdered a child and he had two other accusations against him. He's someone that I would not say would be fit to go out and just go Christmas shopping in a shopping mall. Who hangs out at the mall? Teenagers and kids. Mary Ellen was a 14-year-old. So there's that threat of danger. I don't know how I feel about letting inmates out just to do like whatever they want. I definitely don't have an issue with them getting let out and then having a guard with them. I definitely wouldn't have an issue if it was a lower level offender, but I do understand all the criticisms of, this program. What about you?
0: So I definitely support the program and its mission, but I agree with you um, when you say that Lester should not have qualified for it. While I think work release programs are beneficial, especially when you're considering that an inmate may be released, Lester was not someone who was going to be released. He was someone that was convicted of a very serious crime with aggravating factors. And he was someone that didn't have the good behavior that the program said that it required. Of course, that's not necessarily the fault of the program, but it does show that the program has some flaws in it.
1: Yeah, I feel like it kind of goes back to how people in like the 70s just seem to be so trusting of one another, even criminals. I mean, we said that some people escaped from the state fair and baseball games. That's like a school trip. (laughs)
0: Right, and I think that overall, when it comes to prison reform, I'm definitely not someone that supports, you know, abolishing prisons, but I think that there needs to be some type of real tiering of people that are going into these different prisons. So I definitely support having it where you have people that have been convicted of very serious crimes in a part of the prison that is the hardest to escape. And no, I do not think that they should get privileges. I just don't. They should be treated like humans. I don't think that they should be in prisons that have poor conditions. I don't think that they should be given subpar food, anything like that. But I don't understand why we would give these high luxury things to people that we have determined are not fit for society. Because that's what you're doing when you're giving someone a life sentence. You're saying that this person is no longer fit for society. And we, as a jury, as a judge, we don't think that that summation that we have made is ever going to change. So why are we putting them in art programs? Why are we giving them workforce development training? What workforce are they entering?
1: When you say luxuries, Del, what do you think would be too far? Like, we said that Lester had art supplies. Do you think that's too much of a luxury for someone for a life sentence? Do you think like an education program is too much?
0: So I think that they should be allowed to have a basic education program. So for example, if they don't have a high school diploma, they should, you know, get that equivalency, you know, GED, stuff like that. But I feel like there is only so much money that should be spent on developing the skills of someone who's never going to use them. And that's really the line that I draw. So, hey, I want you to spend that money on the person that you brought in that has a three-year sentence. I want you to give him high-quality educational options, high-quality workforce options. I want you to make sure that he is constantly connected to the outside world because he's going to see it again but I don't understand why tax dollars would go to providing those same services to someone who's not going to use them.
1: That's a really great point. And I didn't even think about the budgeting, but it definitely makes sense to put more money into truly reforming someone and giving them the skills to turn their life around when they are out of prison. I definitely think that it, it is good to have life skills and education, for people that are in prison for the rest of their lives because I don't want anyone to just be like thrown away but I agree that they shouldn't get like workforce development
0: While I agree with you that we should be providing them with some type of services to help pass the time which is all we're doing at this point with someone that's in jail for life we're finding ways for them to pass the time
1: I definitely wouldn't want someone just kind of thrown away, which I know that is how a lot of people view jail. You're just thrown away for the rest of your life, like waiting to rot, basically. I'm glad that Lester at least did. As terrible of a person as I think he is, I am glad that he... He had something to do with himself, with his art. We've seen studies where, you know, prisoners that have nothing to do, that's not good for them. It's not good for the people around them either. Adele, I don't know if you've seen um, some of these newer programs, I guess, that prisons are establishing. But I watched a special, like a PBS special, a year or so ago about a prison in New York that had a college education program and people could get like bachelor's degrees while they were in serving time. And it was a very strict program. I really supported it. I'm definitely like a softie to like stuff like that though. But it seemed like a really great program and people were criticizing it saying like, oh, people will want to go to jail now to get free college, which that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. No one is going to willingly commit a crime have so many of their rights taken away from them just to get a free college education and if people think people are like lining up to do that then we need to take a look at how much college costs in this country as well which another story for another day but still
0: I absolutely agree with you no way in hell is someone going to ruin any chance that they have at getting a job once the college degree is obtained by going to prison for a crime that warrants you actually going to prison. Because this is not a jail program. You know, jail is for typically misdemeanors or felonies that are going to result in you getting less than a year in jail. And these programs are really dedicated to people in prisons. So you're telling me that I'm not only going to commit a crime, I'm going to commit a serious felony to save money?
1: Yeah, I guess it just goes to show, too, how out of touch people are in this country. That was like a lawmaker. I don't know if he was like a congressman or senator or what exactly, but very out of touch. Um, I did want to touch on, two a few other programs I've seen that I've heard are really good for inmates um, are programs where they get to work with animals and take care of pets. I really I love seeing stuff like that. It's really therapeutic for inmates from what I've heard. and. We've talked before how there is the stigma of being incarcerated even when you leave the prison. And when inmates get to work with these animals, all that stigma kind of goes away because they're not being judged by the animals. And I think that's really beautiful to see. I've also seen programs for women in prison who get to have their toddlers and babies in there with them. There's like a special ward. I'm not sure what state it is. I think it might be a few states throughout the country that have programs like this. But mothers get to have their children with them in special wards, and they get to kind of raise their children. And it's really good for the women. And I think it's also good for the children for their long-term development as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those tricky situations. because. A part of me agrees with you. Trying to keep the child and the mother together is definitely very important. But another part of me is saying, do you really want a child being raised in that environment during the early years of their development? And is that really the best place for the child?
1: Yeah, I can understand that. I wish I don't have all the details in front of me. I know that there it was strict... With who could be involved in like the ages of the children, I want to say like it wasn't past like a two or a three-year-old that was participating. I'm not sure about you, Dell, but listening to Lester's case really made me think of a movie. Like it felt like a movie. All of these like they almost got him moments. It's crazy to think like even his execution, he was about to be executed and then the Supreme Court decided like, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. So wild. Like he's had so much luck on his side. We wanted to talk about a few other cases of famous like prison escapes that were also turned into movies and are kind of like popular in our culture and the first, of course, is the escape from Alcatraz. so if you want to talk about that a little,
0: absolutely, I love this case, and it's one of those classic did they get away with it? Were they washed ashore? You don't know so in June of nineteen sixty two three men Frank Morris, and brothers John and Clarence England, they actually disappeared from the prison. And a fourth man, Allen West, was supposed to escape with them, but he couldn't open the pre dugout hatch and the others left without him, which I love. But they're probably regretting that now if they're still alive because he actually went on to fully cooperate with the investigators and gave them all the detailed escape plans. And so he didn't get punished for it. So Hey, he got something out of it. It's unknown whether they actually got to shore or if they died along the way. They were using prison colts that they were given that were tied together into like a makeshift dinghy situation. And there's actually been a lot of studies to see if it was actually possible for them to do it. And it's been inconclusive. In 1979, the FBI actually closed the case saying that the men likely didn't survive and they transferred the case back to the U.S. Marshals and the U.S. Marshals have kept them on their fugitive list. And the warrant for the missing men's arrest will expire between the years of 2026 and 2030, which is the age when each of the missing men will be between 99 and 100 years old, casting real doubts whether they're actually alive. In the early 2000s, according to the New York Times bestselling author, Frank Ahern, the U.S. Marshals actually received the tip that one of the England brothers was in Brazil. And there's been several stories that they were in Brazil and sometimes they would come up for different family functions, actually dressed in drag. And the U.S. Marshals actually went down to Brazil and got confirmation from a local bartender that one of the brothers was there. And there hasn't been any real development on the case. It's, of course, one of those things where newer cases come up, and unfortunately, this one gets put to the wayside. But this definitely is an interesting case. What do you think about it, Jenny?
1: I really have to respect their ingenuity. You hear about how they pulled this off. I mean, I would say they pulled it off because they did escape whether they lived or not. It's crazy all the lengths that they went to and also, like, all the freedom they had to just say, like, hey, yeah, like, I'm going to take these 50 raincoats and, yeah, like, I would really like an issue of, like mechanic weekly or whatever the magazine is they use that to plan their escape and how they were given jobs and they knew how thick the wall was and they even the dummies they made one of the guys was a barber so they had all the human hair it's really impressive i kind of hate to say that but like damn it's it's cool and it's exciting and i don't blame people for being so interested I can't say for sure whether they are alive or not, but I feel like there's more evidence to show that they aren't alive, but I'm not definitive on that. I can believe it either way, I think. What about you?
0: I definitely think that they're alive and living their best life in Brazil. They may have died of natural causes
1: by now. Honestly, if anybody could do it and get away with it, it would be these guys. Another more recent case of a prison escape that I would say is not as like romanticized necessarily is the escape from Danamora. So in 2015, David Sweat and Richard Matt, both convicted murderers, escaped Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, New York. And that is a maximum security prison. They actually escaped through tunnels. And both men had a relationship with Joyce Mitchell. She was a prison employee who helped them escape by bringing tools in. Some people say that they had a sexual relationship with her. Joyce said that she did not have sex with at least one of the men and that she did have a sexual encounter with the other man that was not consensual. So something to keep in mind. There has been an HBO movie that dramatized um, the situation. Another guard who was friendly with the men, um, he was very lenient and that helped them get away with this as well. They were able to hide tools very easily. They were able to walk back to their cells by themselves. Uh, A lot of stuff that maybe Lester Eubanks did, you know, when he was talking, if he was really being so friendly with some of the guards. And this story doesn't have the kind of like fantastical ending as Alcatraz does. Richard Matt was killed by police in a standoff and Sweat was also shot but he was arrested three weeks later and is back in prison. And I think of course we have to mention the Shawshank Redemption not based on a real story as far as I know but a story of the human spirit and escaping prison that I think everyone probably in America has seen a very well-known movie that I'm sure people throughout the world have seen. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Lester Eubanks, please call the U.S. Marshal's office at 1-877-926-8332 or visit their website or you can also visit unsolved.com and they'll pass on any tips. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you all for listening. Let us know in the comments if you think Lester will be caught. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you're able to give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.